Sneeze on the steeplechaser's teardrop, you hot barts. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. If this is your first episode, consider listening to an earlier episode to familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. All Blind Boy has a sore throat this week. I have the beginnings of a sore throat and it's quite painful to talk. So I'll be keeping my introduction quite brief. But I have a fantastic guest lined up for you. A couple of weeks back, I was at the Patrick Kavanagh Festival, a writer's weekend up in Manahan. And I got to chat with the legendary writer Patrick McCabe, who's from Manahan. Now when I say legendary, I don't use that term lightly. Patrick McCabe has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize twice with his books The Butcher Boy and Breakfast on Pluto. And both of them were turned into incredible films. Breakfast on Pluto, it was one of Killian Murphy's first proper roles. And he's still releasing bangers. His book Pogue Mahone came out last year I believe. And it's been compared to Ulysses. If you haven't read The Butcher Boy, I strongly advise it. It is hilarious and heartbreaking. With absolutely beautiful writing throughout. And if you don't want to read the book... The film is also fucking fantastic. It's incredible. Directed by Neil Jordan. Sinead O'Connor is in it as Holy Mary. But if you do have the time, go for the book. Because you will not be disappointed. It is astounding. I've read the book about three or four times in my life. And one of the reasons I was so excited to speak to Patrick McCabe was because I had pretty bad writer's block during lockdown. Real, real bad writer's block. And it was deeply unpleasant. And rereading The Butcher Boy got me out of writer's block. It reconnected me with what I love about writing. It made me feel safe. Because when you have writer's block, you don't feel safe. You feel like you're a child in school, being scolded by the teachers and everything you do is bad and wrong. When you get writer's block, and it goes on for too long, Your entire confidence goes out the window. Your confidence leaves you. And the negative voice that says you're useless, you have no talent, you need to quit, is incredibly loud and all-consuming. To be creative, to create art, you have to be playful. It has to be a playful state of enjoyment. Fear, Fear has no place in that process. And if your inner critic is loud in the creative process, then fear is present and you won't create. It's like pissing while someone is watching. And I was in that state for more than a year. And rereading The Butcher Boy took me out of that. Rereading The Butcher Boy reconnected me with the fun, playful, I don't give a fuck, let's just have crack part of the writing process. So I was so grateful to chat to Patrick McCabe. And we spoke about writer's block We spoke about everything to do with art and creativity. We had so much crack. So, my voice is getting sore now. Without further ado, here's the chat I had with the wonderful Patrick McCabe. How are you getting on? It was a great story. I really enjoyed it. Did you like that? Yeah, I did, yeah. That was great. Great energy in it. Thank you so much. Um, The reason I was so enthusiastic about coming up here and doing this was to chat to you, Pat. I had about... um, I'd say a year and a half of really, really unpleasant writer's block. Yeah. I was trying to write five hours a day, sitting down, yeah. getting absolutely nothing. And it's a very heartful feeling because 
a huge amount of my personal meaning and happiness comes from creativity. And after about a year of it, I was getting to the point where I was nearly going to ring up the book company and say, look, just forget about it. I can't do it. And then I went back and I read The Butcher Boy again. And when I fucking read The Butcher Boy and when I read the freedom of prose that you were doing, it reminded me of what I love about writing. It reminded me of why I was doing it in the first place. And this story there, the donkey, was the first one that came out of it because I'd read The Butcher Boy. And I just want to thank you for that. That's art. That's the beauty of art. I really appreciate the flattery, but I think it's very important to remember that what you're describing, what is commonly called writer's block, it really is part of the whole thing. Because what you're describing there in The Butcher Boy if I could tell you how that came about. Mm-hmm. Like I had uh, two small children, very young, and my wife and I, I left a teaching job and went to London with these two small children, maybe thinking you could write something. And uh, <clears throat> I had written this big slab of thing, which was about, looking back on it now, about five novels in one. And I'd published a book with this English independent publisher, and I sent him this thing. And... Uh, he was looking forward to this second novel, supposed to be, yeah. So I sent it to him, and uh, no word came. You'll find this increasingly with publishers. Ghosting, I understand it's yeah. called, but it's getting increasingly common. I understand between young men and young women and partners mm-hmm. and all that, but publishers are very fond of it. Ghosting, yeah, what a word. Yeah, How vulgar is, how can you mm-hmm. get? But uh, anyway, one was ghosted, as they say. So I was in London, and... Uh, I said to my wife, this, this, this guy isn't uh, getting back to him. I'm a bit concerned that this m- massive masterpiece isn't, is it being read or what? And uh, I called him. So I said, hello, is that you, Patrick? Can you wait a moment? We're watching the racing. So all I could hear was, moving up on the inside, followed closely by Friar Tuck, Friar Tuck, followed by Blind Boy, Boy, Blind Boy on the inside, followed by Patrick McCoy. Oh, so eventually this all went. And eventually, about 10 minutes later, he comes back. Yes, what can I do for you? I said, did you get that novel I sent you? Is that what you call it? I said, yeah. It was 350 pages. It looks like a novel to me. Oh, dear. Mm. We've both read it. And I said, well, what do you think of it? Well, I have no idea what you're, what you're doing with this. It's not for us. Bye-bye. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, just to get back to our original, what, what you were saying about... I left the book there, and you're saying... You know, your writer's block. Mm-hmm. Really what that is, is tension. Mm-hmm. Loss of faith in yourself. Mm-hmm. Loss of faith in the whole business. And everybody that worth their salt who's a writer gets this mm-hmm. all the time. So I left it there. It was like lying in a corner of the little flat we had in Kilburn, like contaminated nuclear waste. All right? Mm-hmm. And I looked at it again, and I thought, well, I'm not surprised. He didn't like it. It's no good. And it stank to high heaven in my head. I threw it away. So I was teaching in a junior school in London at the time, and exactly what you're describing there about you lost faith, strength, everything goes. Beautifully described in Bob Dylan's book, Chronicles. Now, Bob Dylan was at the height of his fame when he was doing Oh Mercy. He said, it's gone. It's lost. I can't get it back. Mm -hmm. He leaves the studio. He's working with Daniel Lanois. Mm -hmm. He leaves the studio. He goes off downtown, wherever it was, and he's really, really knocked back. And when you, you know, Dylan lies about a lot of things, but I don't think he lies about the essential Mm -hmm. nature of his calling. So 
he's on his own with the hood up, I'm sure, hot, slunched, sort of hunched. And he goes down a, into a little basement bar. There's a little jazz combo playing. And he's sitting there knocking back some wine. The next minute, one of the sax players, I think, does a little phrase. And he said the hair stood up on the back of his neck. And he raced back to the studio and started doing it. You never know when that's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? So always remember that if it ever happens again. You never know when it's going to come back, but it will. So anyway, this thing lay there and, you know, a very understanding partner said, I made a mistake here. She said, no, 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 hold on, hold on. You didn't make a mistake. Just let it go, let it go. And uh, about, I would say, two months later, I woke up and I started writing what you now call The Butcher Boy. Mm-hmm. It took me two weeks. Wow. Yeah. And what I'm trying to say to you is that what was contaminated nuclear waste, I didn't realize it then, but that was the foundation stone. that you took off from that. And how much of the butcher boy was in that rejected manuscript? There were about five novels in there because I was young and wanted to do everything at once. Do you understand me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very, very common because you're ambitious, you want to make your, you know, your, your steak. But... I would say if I went back to that slab of rubbish now, but it wasn't rubbish really, but whatever it was, if I were to investigate it, I'd say you'd find traces of everything I've ever done since mm-hmm. in there. So like, that's kind of why it's important, I think, for writers, musicians, and artists to know each other. Mm-hmm. Because critics will never know this, and they, they don't really get it, actually. You know, you read about Jan Wenner. I don't know if anybody even knows him now, but he was the big cheese in the founding of Rolling Stone, you know, and he's produced this book, you know, and it's it's uh, under fire now because it's, yeah. it's um, I think, legitimately under fire because it talks about masters of rock, you know, yeah. and Johnny Mitchell's not in it and Carol King's not in it. And Look, I know everybody can make mistakes, but the thing is, there was a kind of thing with those critics in that... When Bob Dylan produced Self-Portrait, John Wenner was the first to, to headline, what is this shit? Yeah. Well, you know, if you look at the arc of Bob Dylan's career and now you look at Self-Portrait, you very much understand mm-hmm. what Bob Dylan was doing. You know, he was, he, his, his imagination was so ahead of, of people, you know, that a bit in common with yourself, but that's really just the, the rush of energy that's coming off. Self-Portrait is full of that. But critics, you see, have got caught up in this kind of template of, of the reasoned, rational, kind of finger-tapping, kind of good manners kind of view of things. So when anything come, new comes along, they don't get it. They come later on. Now, some of them do, but by and large, it's because they're not in the space that Bob Dylan was in when he went down the stairs to that little basement and the hair stood on the back of his neck. And that recording session there, is that where the song Blind Willie McTell came out of? I think so. It is. And it that, is, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. that's one of my favourite Dylan it's songs. It's an amazing song, yeah. Well, there's but, so much that he's done that's amazing, but, but that's one of them. Dylan didn't know that was good. D- Daniel, like, he thought when he recorded Blind Willie McTell that it was shit, and Daniel Lanois had to convince him this is actually a good song. That's why it ended up on the, the basement tapes, or not the, the bootleg sessions and not the album. It happened with a lot of them on the basement tapes as well. They were just knocking things off, you know, and Dylan didn't know what was good and what was bad, but I guess that's what happens with geniuses, you know. Um, one thing I'd love to speak to you about as well is, so when I was speaking about the creative block there, okay, what put me into that creative block was I got a really bad review in the Irish Times. I got a review that was... They were arguing that I shouldn't be allowed to write. The the quote that they used was, I don't believe in gatekeeping literature, but... Do you know what I mean? Which was a strong... And it was because I said, 
most of my influences come from music or painting, and I'm not really into reading. I love reading, but not as much as I like listening to music. Now, for me, creativity is creativity. I'd, I'd like... Like, Tom Waits would be my biggest influence as a writer, and not just his lyrics, his, his music. And I don't have a problem in saying that. And, and then producing short stories and saying, yeah, this is like a Tom Waits song. Music is a huge thing for you as well in your writing. Well, I'm trying to get a, get a key into a story, and I really can't get it. But this thing keeps going around in my head, which just goes like, uh, A tongue can accuse and carry bad news. There's signs of distrust, it will show. But unless you've done something wrong in your life, be careful of the stones that you throw. Now, what's that you say? Yeah. Well, that's the song I first heard Big Tom from Monaghan singing. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I heard it when I was about six, seventeen. It's actually a Hank Williams, Aka Luke the Drifter um, melody and lyric, I think. And if you ever looked at uh, Hank Williams' notebooks, I think maybe you should maybe pop it in the post to the reviewer that you're talking about there, because it's written in this beautifully elegant childhood scrawl, you know, and uh, the links between music and literature are so strong. Mm -hmm. Like, when Hank Williams was... Uh, he died at 29. Yeah. You no, know, and I don't only mention Hank Williams because there's a huge country and western thing here, you know, mm -hmm. always has been. Big mm -hmm. Tom is a very big part of that. Big Tom and the mainliners. Yeah. And he didn't know that mainliner meant doing heroin. I don't really know if that's a true story or not. You think he did know? Oh, I think he knew an awful lot more than he did. Okay, know. okay. I think there is nobody, believe me, I've met plenty, there is nobody who is in a show band that doesn't know everything that goes on. <laughs> I'm telling you, up every lane in Ireland and abroad, of course, you know, he was a shy kind of quiet, but he, he was a very knowledgeable, worldly wise mm -hmm. man. But what I'm saying about that, that song is that... Um, and the links between music and uh, music and literature, whether it's hip hop and limerick or country and western music, uh, Monaghan, Cavan, and our man in the north generally. But uh, style is a kind of funny thing. And when I'm using that song as a kind of that's the beat in my head, you know, mm -hmm. when I'm looking for this thing. But uh, so you're chasing the feeling yeah, that, that song yeah, gives you, but, but absolutely as prose. Uh, uh, totally, yeah. the beat, the rhythm, the tempo. Yeah. So this is a kind of a different one than I had expected, but. Um, when, uh, I understand that completely, I, but that's I, I, a strange I, I, one to I, say I, to a literary critic. No, no, I felt you would. I felt you would. And, um, you know, uh, Hank Williams went to Roy Aikoff and he said, well, I got this yodel, he says, and I stole that yodel from you, Roy Aikoff. Then I went to Ernest Tubbs and I got it freezing from him. So we put the two of them together. Then he went to comic books. Right? Mm -hmm. He's reading, do you remember those? I uh, know you're too young to remember these kind of books, but true romance tales where the word balloon is coming out. Oh, you're a cold, cold heart. All this kind of thing. And uh, uh, Was it like a Pulp Fiction? Pulp Fiction. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're driving along in this high-ass van or whatever it would have been, a you know, Chevy. And one of these, the driver got, turns around and said, hey, Hoss, what you doing there in the back? And uh, Hank said, I'm reading these books. Every time I look at you, you're looking, you're reading these sissy books. What you doing reading them sissy books, Hank? And Hank said, that's where I get all my material. So all these Hank Williams songs, like Cold, Cold Heart, You Win Again. Wow. He's using, so that's literature. Okay, it might be described as degraded literature, but not to me. 
So the, the idea, you know, that there isn't a constant interplay between music and literature is so laughable, it's embarrassing. It's ridiculous. And again, to use a big word, it's pure postmodernism. It's taking all the different types of art forms and going, there's no limits here. We can remix everything. We can have it all together. As, I mean, I just understand it as creativity. You know? but, but surely Limerick was to the forefront in recent years of that because, I mean, the age I am, like kind of getting old, kind of, you know, blues rock, it's, it is old, let's face it. You, yeah. know, you, you, you even get Keith Richards now saying, oh, I can't listen to that hip-hop. You know, people shouting at me. Mm-hmm. So nothing really changes much. You know, here's a, an old granddad now complaining, you know, all he thinks is at the forefront of rock. But when... When all that started after the kind of troubled urban history that Limerick had, and suddenly this vernacular burst forth with great confidence, didn't it? I mean, hip, like, I love the blues and I love hip-hop as well, and I, I, I kind of don't separate the two, because sure. they're both... What I love about African-American art forms, right, is, like, it's post-colonial music. It's music that's... Like, if you... Yeah. if One thing I'm fascinated about is if you go beyond America and you go back to Africa... West Africa in particular, there's languages there where they use clicks. So how they speak, they, they have clicks in how they speak. Now, we don't have that in, mm-hmm. in how we speak. A mm-hmm. lot of Western languages don't have clicks. But there's an entire system of communication in certain West African countries based on clicks and drums. Like, if you think of how we use, like this, knocking on a door, we understand that. In West Africa, they might have 70 variations of knocks and rhythms, and these things actually mean language in the absence of, of written language. It's oral culture and also drums. And that informs all African-American music, whether it be, if you listen back to Robert Johnson, the way that he'd be slapping that string, you know, and singing. Hip-hop is the same thing, but the thing with hip-hop, hip-hop came about in the 70s in America because that they had defunded music programs in places like Harlem and the Bronx. Music programs had been defunded to the point that the African-American kids didn't have instruments anymore. Mm. So they made instruments out of their parents' records. Mm. And that West African thing of, of rhythm and beat and drums coming out in the music. So when that hit Limerick, I grew up with nothing but hip-hop. My mm. ice tea, ice cube... These people were my gods. Mm-hmm. And the v- desire within me as, as, as when I was 17, 18, to make rap music, it was so strong. But I'm like, the fuck am I going to rap about? Do you know what I mean? I do, the yeah. What fuck yeah. am I going to rap about? Mm-hmm. And I was also reading Flann O'Brien. Mm-hmm. And the thing with Flann O'Brien was, I would have been listening to, to Ice Cube, but also Dylan as well and Tom Waits. And, and these people were gods to me. But I, I could never put myself in their shoes because they were American. But Flann O'Brien, it's like, wow, I feel the same way about this writing as I feel about Ice Cube or I feel about Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this fella talks like me and he thinks like me. This what is book in particular of Flann O'Brien's was it? Was oh, it Third Policeman? Probably? Third Policeman was yeah. the one that did it for me. Yeah. And the reason I knew about Flann is that his brother was actually my family doctor. So his brother, Fergus, had moved down to Limerick so he was my family doctor throughout. So Flan's books were in my house as a kid. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even the great Flan O'Brien. It was 
there's the doctor's brother's book. Oh, of course, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and his, his brother, it was kind of before my time now because I was born in the 80s. His brother used to come to the house the whole time and he famously gave my dad a lecture about smoking that was about 30 minutes long. And then as he left, he asked him for a cigarette, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And as well, Flann O'Brien's brother saw me in the pram and I was a little baby and he said to my ma, he's going to be very handsome. He's going to be famous for how handsome he is. And I got famous by wearing a bag in my head, mm. which I think is wonderfully Flan. Very much so. But mm. Flan was a huge presence in my house. His humour, his books. And when I started reading The Third Policeman, I couldn't believe that I felt, I felt the way that Ice Cube makes me feel or Bob Dylan makes me feel. Mm. But this person's Irish. So when I first started making rap music with the Rubber Bandits, mm -hmm. I was just like, what would Flan O'Brien do? So, so Irishness was still a big issue in the eighties, was it for you? Like, I mean, well, this would have been the two thousands when I was making when oh, I was much making later, music. So, yeah. well, like, isn't that a curious thing when you think about it? Um, um, Either you relate that to the post-colonial thing in some way. It was. It would have been very embarrassing for me from Limerick to try and rap like I'm from the Bronx. You know what I mean? But no more than Mick Jagger or Keith Richards singing like a black man. For some reason, they got away with they it. They got away with it. Now, you have I to don't examine know that. How did that happen? Like, why should it be any more difficult? Because there's more authenticity to rap music than the blues. With, with the, now, what I mean, I'm not dissing the blues. What I mean is mm. that when you sing the blues, mm. there's an understanding in the room that you're kind of an actor and you're playing a part. Sure. Rap music is very, very much about your literal, authentic story and keeping it real. Mm. So you don't lie in rap music because if you lie in rap music, you're seen as a fraud. It has to, the authenticity is essential to it. So what my authenticity was, I'm going to do a rap song about a greyhound in Limerick because that was the reality, but I'm going to deliver it with the passion. Or my first proper rap song would have been a song called Up the Ra which you heard at the Flat Lakes Festival. And I quote, Sylvia Plath is in the Ra. Yeah. So uh, that, that... I heard it myself. <laughs> that song was about... Um, mm -hmm. When I was a kid down in Limerick, the IRA to us was something that was on the television, you know? And the IRA when I was a kid was a kind of a macho thing. Mm. It, there was uh, Bob Marley, Tupac and the IRA, and those were the three things. And we didn't separate those things and we didn't think about them critically because it just meant a type of masculinity. Sure. So that song that I had up the Ra was about a southerner from Limerick not having a clue about history where, you know, Tupac is in the IRA, uh, Quentin Tarantino is in the IRA. That's the way kids City think, isn't it? That's a big mashup. That's how it was. But I'm looking at, mm. for me, I was looking at, at Swim Two Birds. Yes. Because with it Swim Two Birds, mm. Flann O'Brien is getting... 1950s or 1940s cowboys That's and right. putting them into the, uh, not the town the, the Fenian cycle with, with Fionn McCool mm. so you have Fionn McCool and a cowboy existing side by side and I'm like holy fuck and why do you think that you really got into Flann O'Brien as opposed to Ulysses say because Ulysses is full of stuff like that in fact that's where Flann O'Brien got it <laughs> I, 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 just too intimidating, way perhaps. too intimidating, yeah. and I was, I was in my thirties before. Sure, before sure. I, no, I understand that. Before I picked up Ulysses and, and was in, and, and that's, the, that's, that's the truth for an awful lot of people, which is a great pity, because because it's hilarious. It's Ulysses hilarious, is yeah. fucking hilarious. No, that's what it's I'm just saying. a drunk uncle at a wedding. There, no, if you it were, is. If, no, no, I'm not disagreeing at all. Yeah. No, no. I was at that wedding. I was the uncle, and I quoted Ulysses. 
And the thing is, if you break it down and you chop it up like that, uh, you know, you will see that Flannel O'Brien really wasn't the first to do that stuff. No, no. You know, good luck to him and he's great and everything. But Of course. I mean, the way that Ulysses follows the, is it the Odyssey, yeah. the way that it follows the Odyssey, Flan, I reckon, was, was going, fuck it, can I do this with Irish mythology? I know. But in fairness yeah, to yeah. Flan, this is what I love about Flan, yeah. he was literally translating he, he had such an understanding of Irish that he was actually taking some of the manuscripts in Old Irish and translating it into English. Mm. And he was elevating Irish mythology to the level of Greek mythology, which I thought was class two. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But in but, terms of the wild humour and the humanity, though, it does come in a close second to Joyce, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You prefer Ulysses as you... As you well, he was there first, and it is wilder, course. and yeah. it, it is more expansive. And... Um, if you examine the female mind in Ulysses, it's very sophisticated mm-hmm. the way it's done. Mm-hmm. And the relationship between men and women is way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just exactly as you say, if you think of this, you're the uncle at the wedding and you've got Ulysses well-thumbed in your arse pocket and you say, hey, we'll, we'll read you this bit. <laughs> you know, there's no way you can't laugh at it, most of it. And what I adore about Joyce too is... He opened the first fucking cinema in Dublin. That's right, yeah. You know? Yeah. And sometimes I wonder, especially when I was reading, when I read The Dead, Mm. when I read The Dead, I get a vibe of this fellow wanted to make a film. Especially the end when he talks about the snowflakes. There's, he's imagining cameras that can float in the air before they existed. And I think The Dead was written around 1915, I think. It might have been a bit earlier. Around that anyway. But I think himself and Eisenstein were going to meet at some point and they, um, if they had got together, it would have been like a nuclear explosion because, as you say, Ulysses is so spermic, you know? It's like drone cameras. Did they ever meet? I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they did. I'll tell you who he did meet, though, and you never knew about it. It was Emma de Valera. Go away out of it. They had, the same, they had the same eye surgeon in Zurich, and there's a photograph of the two of them together. Now, there would be a conversation for Blind Boy to put down in his next book. What I've would a, they say? I, come on, Ramon, what would they say? I'm Joyce. <laughs> Here's Joyce. another mad theory. Are you familiar with the, the art movement called Dada? Have you ever yeah, very it? much so, yeah. So, the stones are full of guts, my friend. Yes. <laughs> the Dada Manifesto mm-hmm. was written in Zurich, right? Mm. A week after the 1916 Rising. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I view the 1916 Rising as a type of Dada performance art. Well, I mean, because it appears. I mean, if you consider that Joseph Murray Plunkett was a roller skate champion who won medals in Albania, it's a very, very, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very possible, plausible theory, you know. And you he know, was a roller skate champion. Yeah. Are you serious? You think this is a joke, Blind no, Boy? No, I believe you. Get, go, get the Googlers out, guys. What roller, is skate, roller skate champion in Albania. Was it Algeria? Algeria. Algeria. I didn't even know they had roller skates in Algeria. How could I have got it so wrong? Algeria, of course, my good man. How did he manage that? I just skated around. I don't know how it's done. Fucking hell. <laughs> um, hold on, I need to make sure now that we're not going to... Nine o'clock, is that, is that time for the interval? Is nine o'clock the interval time? It's time now for a little interval. It's time for the ocarina pause. I'm, I'm not in my office. I'm in my home studio. Because I have a sore throat, I didn't leave the house today. I'm in my home studio, so I still don't have my ocarina, I can't find it. But I have this little weird... It's like a wooden frog. 
I have a little weird wooden frog that makes a rattling noise. So I'm going to play this and you're going to hear an advert for something. Ah, it's supposed to croak. It's a frog and you rub its back with this wooden thing and it sounds like croaking. Ah, that's what it is. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person, and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindby today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindby. There's something unintentionally pagan about that that I enjoy. Because I, I have a frog in my throat. That's what you say when you have a, a sore throat, isn't it? So maybe I cast a little strange wooden spell on my throat there. This podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash The Blind by Podcast. Whatever reason you listen to this podcast. Entertainment. Enjoyment. Merriment. Fucking distraction. The news cycle this week is incredibly sad. Some people listen to this for distraction to get away from that shit. Whatever has you returning to this podcast, whatever has you taking your time out of your week to listen to this podcast, this is my full-time job and it's how I earn a living and it's how I pay the rent for my office and how I feed myself and pay my bills. So if you enjoy this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month, that's it. And if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. Everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. Wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. 
it's also the reason I don't miss a week. We're coming up to the six year anniversary of this podcast this month and I haven't missed a week in six years because of gratitude. I'm doing this shit since I'm about 16 years of age. I've been trying to be professionally creative for a long time and most of those years were completely unpaid and the years that I was getting paid it was wildly unpredictable. But since I started this podcast six fucking years ago my patrons have allowed me to have a predictable fucking income as an artist which I'm eternally and consistently grateful for. So if I get a sore throat I work through it. I figure out a solution. So just some upcoming gigs for my book tour in November because my book Topographia Hibernica a new collection of short stories that I'm very proud of is coming out 9th of November in Ireland 19th in the UK my book tour slash podcast tour UK tour is mostly sold out except for there's tickets left for Liverpool and Coventry on the 14th and 16th of November Belfast is almost sold out on the 18th of November and then what's almost about to go you don't want to miss this one. My Vicar Street Dublin book launch. Right on the 19th of November. I can't wait for that. And then February 24. Berlin is now sold out. So I'm looking at trying to add a second Berlin date. And there's still tickets for my live podcast in Oslo in February. Back to my chat with the wonderful, fascinating Pat McCabe. We basically just continued the conversation backstage. I apologize. <laughs> we didn't stop. But backstage, we'd managed to get on to speaking about the, the singer John McCormack from the 1920s. And I'll tell you what came into my head. And I said, I'm going to save this for stage. Because you were talking about um, some type of Irish music that was being sang in houses and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So they were doing these archaeological excavations in old Irish houses. And some houses, when they dug up the floorboards in old cottages, they used to find horses' skulls full of... Uh, like bottle caps and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And it, so what would happen is when the Protestants uh, during the... What did you call it when the Protestants came here in the 1600s? Plantations. It, the plantations. When the Protestants came to Ireland with the plantations, Protestants were terrified of witches. Now, we didn't really have witches in Ireland, but Protestants were terrified of witches. And Protestants believed that witches would come down chimneys And Protestants believed in the 1600s that witches were afraid of horses. So Protestants would put horses' skulls in their floorboards where the chimney was so that if a witch's spirit came down, it would go, fuck this, there's a horse's skull underneath. And they also used to make witch bottles, which was a glass bottle full of nails that the Protestant would piss into because the witch would smell the human piss and then get caught in a a, a load of nails down in this witch's bottle. But what would happen is Catholics would then move into the cottage and the Catholics would be having a Kaylee and they'd be banging on the ground and they'd notice, fuck me, the sound sounds great here. What's going on? And they'd lift up the floorboard and they're like, the fuck are the Protestants doing leaving a lot of horses' skulls here? We don't know what this mythology is, but it sounds great. The horse's skull is a perfect acoustic chamber. So then the Catholics went in and they threw bottle caps into the horse's skull so they turned the ground into a fucking tambourine with this perfect acoustics. I'm serious. And the best houses for music, like before sound systems, were all Protestant houses that had a bunch of horse's skulls with bottle caps in them. Like, isn't that class? (laughs) 
So I wanted to say that to you backstage, but is that verifiable? Like, oh yeah, man. I would, but I did. I did a podcast on that. I I, I go deep into like uh, academic art articles and archaeological records to find that stuff. I don't just put it out of my no, ass. No, no, no. It's, it's good either way. <laughs> you got to be able to back that one up. But it, it get, something I love about music, right? I love how environment can shape music, how the shape of a room, this is, when I got into this church here, like I was fascinated by, was this a Catholic church or a Protestant church? Because they're built quite differently. But something fascinating about the history of music. In around the 11th or 12th century, there was Gregorian chant, okay? So these are monks that are singing, but they're singing in a monastery. And the monastery is effectively one room, like a, a round room. And when the monks would sing Gregorian chant, they all kind of sang at the same octave, ah, all of them together. Then in the 14th or 15th century, when they built Notre Dame Cathedral in France, right? The mathematics of how they built the inside of this cathedral, it went up in fives, the actual architecture of the building. And then when monks went to sing there, no one told them to, but gradually they started to harmonize in fifths. Mm -hmm. So the harmony of how they sang matched the mathematics of the fucking cathedral. Because music is, is symmetrical vibrations of air. So why wouldn't it happen? And do you see music like, say, hip-hop, which is, you know, the vernacular now of urban limerick, whatever. Do, do, you, do you see it mutating into something else? Or will it be like rock and roll? Say I was born in 1955 and it kind of had its adolescence in the 70s. And now... It seems to me old and tired. And mm -hmm. It's a limited art form anyway, if it's an art form. I think it probably is. You could argue maybe that the old seven-inch single was almost a perfect art form in that it was three minutes long, you know. It, yeah. You know, and it, it told its story and off it went. But now, you know, it's a cliche, you know, go to London sometimes, you sit outside the Hope and Anchor, which was the big place for all the... And oh, you can see them, you know, like a bad play arriving up with the grey hair and the leather jackets and all the chains. And man, you really should have been there, you know, at, at the Bath International Festival. Or did you hear their third album, the second track on the... Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We know all that. So that's and they're living in the past. Totally, yeah. So what I'm saying is like, now there's a whole... Because I'm kind of interested because we have three grandchildren, you know, and they're mm -hmm. coming up around. I'm really interested to vault into the future as to where music might land. So, you know, you were saying that uh, the influence of Bruce Lee, for example, the Kung Fu master on break dancing, then that becomes yeah. hip hop, with, uh, like linked with the African kind of clicks and all that. Where can, where can music go with now, you know, when you get so old? In Limerick at the moment yeah. with hip hop. Like, first, the first thing you asked me tonight when we were backstage was the, the hip-hop scene in Limerick, because the, the rap scene in Limerick has exploded in the past five years. We've got Denise Chyla, Hazy, Strange by Nature. We have all of these incredible artists coming out of Limerick that are practicing rap music. The reason Limerick had an explosion in rap music, and I always say this, is that this is why we should invest in the arts. As you know, Limerick had its problems about 20 years ago. There was problems with gangs and violence and stuff like that. That's not the case anymore. But around 2010, when the recession happened, we set up this thing in Limerick called Music Generation. Some of the money came from U2, fair play to them, and the Cranberries as well. A big fund of money was set up to basically look at the fact that Limerick had an issue where there's kids who are at risk of 
joining gangs or whatever, they put money into music generation. And what it meant was <clears throat> people my age, because I'm in my late 30s now, so people my age then who were in their 20s, who were in bands, they didn't have to emigrate with the recession. They could stay in Limerick and show younger kids how to make music. And all those younger kids that were in this program, they're now the ones that are making hip-hop music and are getting international recognition. So, Would you be in favour then of investing in these things? Like my, you my fund the fucking... My adolescent yeah. self would, be, would have thought, ban it. And but, then it'll flourish. But the thing is, but you've got a point. <clears throat> if you were a kid and all of a sudden we'll say, there's a lot of money to be a writer, the fact that that centre exists means that you're probably on the outside in the alleyway writing something. So e even the fact that there's, there's the kids over there, they're getting funding, they're approved. Well, I'm going to be on the, on the outside of that. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. E Even that works. Sure, yeah. It's yeah. better than nothing. Sure, absolutely. No, I'm just curious. If it works, that's how I'm totally in favour of it because like, there was absolutely no funding, really. When I... That's what I want to know. How, like, how, how did you become a writer? How, how, how did you, when you, like, at what point in, in your life did you decide, fuck it, I'm going to write words on a page? There's a, a sort of a, a view of writing, and I would say art in general, visual or musical. Well, what used to be called, I don't know if people ever talk about it now, it was called the necessary wound. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with this concept? No. Oh, no, well, really what it means is there's something missing in you. There's an ache. There's a vague unhappiness. Mm -hmm. and you don't know what it is. Now, children know this. You know, they'll never tell anyone. But you can sometimes see it in their eyes, some vague unhappiness. And everybody has this wound to some extent. You know, it could be anything. It could be a slight in the, in the schoolyard. It could be a sibling getting preferential treatment with an eye. It could be anything. It can be small or it can be big, but it's there and it's part of you. Well, for me, it was very, very much inextricable with the notion of uh, creation. Mm -hmm. Like when I was uh, youngish, about maybe nine or ten, you know, the emotional intelligence that children have, both male mm -hmm. and female, you know when something is wrong, but you don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And I had this kind of impression when I was very young of almost ecstatic happiness. I lived in a town called Clonus, where I still live. I always thought it was called Clones. Clones, yeah, they're all, they, they all look the same. Yeah. I remember actually when I was teaching in Longford, there was, a, there was a movie made, a science fiction movie called Clones. It really exists, you can yeah. Google it. And uh, I was in a pub in Longford and this guy, I think you're all fucking it, don't you, up there? <laughs> and and uh, I, said, I said, what do you mean? Ah, fuck off, he said. I said, no, no, what, what are you talking about? Down the audience. Never make anything about here, though, do they? <laughs> but uh, anyway, to get back to the necessary wound, it was kind of this thing, you know, how almost ecstatically ha happy was, you know, going to the local convent school and town, very, very, you know, good education and so on. But something was wrong at home, and I didn't know what it was. And uh, there'd been an awful lot of activity going on, baking cakes and everything, and visitors, and then that all stopped. And, of course, you don't realise at that age that what you might be surrounded by is postnatal depression on the part of mm -hmm. your mother. But you know it, you feel it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I began to become very disconnected until the, the jokes wouldn't land anymore. Mm -hmm. um, there was a darkness around the place, unhappiness. 
and really was quite unhappy, I think, at this age. And uh, I had a wonderful teacher in the primary school in um, Clonus. His name was Jerry McMahon. And I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11. And uh, I started to feel, if you could recast the world after the manner of your own preference, in other words, in your imagination, become Montezuma, prince of the Aztecs, mysteriously mm -hmm. riding down from Anna Street, Clonus, and a brood mare, or perhaps inhabit the body of King Kong, yes. climbing around tower. That mysteriously, a kind of calm descended. Wow. Yeah. So I started writing all these things. And, and uh, that's creativity. It was at that age. So I gave them to Jerry, and uh, he said, you know, these are very good, but you're a bit undisciplined. And of course, as a, as a kid, you go, well, what would you know anyway? Yeah. Until I realized, ah, so if you were disciplined, what benefit would that be? And he would say, well, you've got, he didn't say it in these words, but effectively what he was saying was, in any work of art, you have your exposition, your development, and your recapitulation. Or to paraphrase Jean-Luc Godard, every story must have a beginning, middle, and an end, but mm -hmm. not necessarily in that order, yeah. as you well know, blind boy. Mm -hmm. But when I started to put a shape on these things, he said, now they're in good order. They're very polished. I want you to read them to the class. Well, I read one or two of them, and lo and behold, I had gone from that McCabe fellow needs his arse kicked into his neck, and you better do messages for me and buy me cigarettes, mm -hmm. to actually having some kind of a, a power, as it were. Wow. And uh, it was like some kind of secret thing. And uh, started to write. But then, of course, when you get overconfident, the story's no good. Yeah. So then you learn another thing, humility. Yeah. So by the time I was 12 or 13, I thought, hmm, there could be some future in this. And not in terms of success, although that might have been part of it, but in terms of personal happiness. Mm -hmm. That's where it was coming from. If the world is such a difficult place, which was increasingly becoming to appear to me, if there was a world you could make yourself, whereby sometimes you could be crown prince or you could be, you know, a great warrior or, or even social realist things, if you could make something that was solely your own, mm -hmm. then you might be a little bit more at ease. Mm -hmm. Other people got it in sport, you see. Yeah. You You're know. talking about flow as well. Very much so. Yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah. So then when you go back to your original thing about writer's block, where somebody cuts across you. This writer's block for me is when I can't get flow. There you have it. Yeah. There you have it. So somebody has cut across you, and there's you moving along with a lovely, even... And suddenly there's a dam, and you can't get past it. Mm -hmm. And then you, all, the, all the other things that were there initially, which were disconnection from the world and an over-alert dissatisfaction, all come back because they don't go away. Everybody knows that now with the examinations and therapies and psychoanalysis. They are all still there, mm -hmm. ready and waiting. And uh, that's possibly what writer's block might be, but more importantly, it is, it's interrupting what you've now perhaps decided might be your life, which is Kavanagh said, you know, a person dabbles in verse and discovers it can be your life. But the problem, as I had studied a lot of the, the writers that I admired, it's an incredibly difficult life mm -hmm. for an awful lot of people. And um, it's why it's so kind of important for artists to know each other or to kind of understand. Because if someone doesn't understand that, and, you know, it is a little bit adolescent, you know. As Martin Amos, God rest him, said, 
you know, a father or a mother, I should, who is a writer, or but they're not entirely 100% present at any time, mm-hmm. either for their children or their partner. And that's, you know, it's a selfish act, really. And uh, it, can, it can be problematic. Because like, you have to live in the dream world for a while. Well, that's true. That's a good yeah. way of putting it. That's pretty much it. So That's what I had to say to my ma when she rings me up. I'm like, I'm in the dream world today. I, I, I need to live in my own thoughts to figure this shit out, and I mightn't be fully present. Well, what does she say? You need a good wealth in the arse, yeah. blind boy. 100%. <laughs> yeah, cop on yourself. <laughs> I'll bet she does. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but so anyway, the necessary wound was that, and... Uh, Insofar as you can ever understand it, because it's a, a totally irrational act, locking, locking yourself away for seven or eight hours a day, making up shit that doesn't exist. Like I mean, it's not. I mean, on the outside, not, it looks insane. It is insane, but yeah. the internal experience of it is absolutely wonderful. The lived experience of writing and being in flow. Except when it's not. Except when it's fucking not, and then it's torture. That's right. Yeah. Um, something I'd love to speak to you about is. <clears throat> Like, the character of Francie Brady, right? Mm. Like, I look, I, I read that now, having language around trauma, having language, or, I have all the, the language about mental health and psychology. And what I felt you did so beautifully with that character is that I don't think Francie Brady is mentally unwell. He is somebody who experienced such great trauma that he ended up effectively experiencing psychosis. And what you portrayed in that is the impact of trauma on a young mind and how that can turn someone that way. But I asked the internet for questions tonight to ask yourself. A lot of people wanted to know about language around mental health. Like, Francie had no support system whatsoever. He was just called bad. No one would have said he has mental health issues. Nobody looked for how hard it was for him. He was just bad. Well... That's not entirely true. I mean, there wouldn't have been support systems pretty much anywhere in the world at that time, whether it was England or Ireland or anywhere else. I mean, we're all banished children of Eve, put it that way, to quote mm-hmm. the rosary, that um, people were in a, an impoverished, relatively speaking, country with very little access. And remember, it's only 1960-61, you know, where all these awful diseases like smallpox, diphtheria, polio were being eradicated up to yeah. that child mortality. So they were, you know, particularly housewives and mothers were literally exhausted mm-hmm. from trying to look after their own children, never mind, you know, looking after someone else's. And they were kind of bewildered, you know, as to what to do. Because when you're dealing with somebody as unpredictable and as wily and as, you know, possibly dangerous, you know, you're worried, you know, what mm-hmm. if he comes for you? Mm-hmm. But see... The way I viewed that book was when I had it finished, because it came from such a deep wellspring that I'm trying to articulate for you now about the unhappiness. Of it. Really what it was saying was, if, you know, if you'll accept my earlier analysis of this almost ecstatic happiness and happiness with the wo- oneness with the world, and then it's, it's not. But what he's asking himself is, why was there so much love in the world and now there isn't? Mm-hmm. And what is it anyway? Mm-hmm. Is it worth anything? Because at some point, he says, um, the beautiful things in this world, they count for nothing in the end. You see, for me, it wasn't a story about a psychotic boy. It was a much bigger story mm-hmm. than that. And um, a kind of a parable almost. 
and um, there's a cyclical kind of turn in it when the the two uh, residents or inmates of the hospital, they call them the bony arse bog men. <laughs> yeah. And he's looking at them. And that's when the tear strolls down his cheek and the thing like third policeman begins again. Yeah. Really what it's about is not a small town called Carn or Clonus or anything else. It's about the condition of love because there was a young guy and I was everywhere with him. This young, it, it, There was a lot of transient um, movement in Clonus because there was a railway there and there was a border. So we had a lot of customs people and train drivers. They were always moving. And this guy, I went everywhere with him. And uh, it was almost crystalline kind of understanding, as there is between young boys and girls at that yeah, age, yeah. say eight or nine. And... Uh, it used to be a kind of a currency. If a young child pupil came to the school, you'd make a beeline for him and see had he any comics. Yeah. This was the thing, because a big democratic kind of currency that was comics. Cinema and comics was the thing. It was democratic kind of art forms. So you'd go up to this guy and say, hey! And he'd say, what? I always see what, his new, what the new accent would be. If it was Granard, you'd go off. Oh, Jesus, talking like the new fella. Or Dublin. <laughs> You're like, this was the thing. But he said, have you any comics? He said, yeah, I have. And I go, what have you got? He goes, Dandy Beano, Topper, Victor Hornet, Hosper, Hardigan, and, and Commandos. And then, oh, I must hang around with this guy. So all the time he was swapping comics, running around, rambling the fields, all the things, standard kind of uh, rural boyhood fare. But one day I called down, I says, Liam there. And a, a strange woman answered the door. I said, where's Leo? Well, he's gone. I said, what do you mean he's gone? Well, no, did you not know they're gone? His father's been transferred to Dublin. Oh, fuck me. I was ready to burn the town down after this. Because I had figured, no, this can't change. This is the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. This is a kind mm -hmm. of an Eden. I think maybe some kind of schism or sort of trauma might happen. I don't know. But it wasn't the same after that. I thought, fuck this, and threw the comics away. And, you know, didn't go around telling anybody about it. But then you don't, do you? These are the things, these are the necessary wounds. I'm hearing so much of your own biography now in The Butcher Boy. Like the cakes. You better watch yourself. No, but like, <laughs> I mean, today we use the word, we, auto fiction is what they say, you know yeah, what I mean? So. But like, there's a, the cakes in particular, you know, that broke my heart in the book. But you're saying you remember the, the cakes from your own childhood. Yeah, but this is where the art comes in, I think. Because if I had to delineate it as it was, as it had happened, it would just be another sob story. It was a much, yeah. a much bigger project that I had. I mean, it built up over years a notion of what, what style is. You know, coming back to the, the teacher in Clonus, you cannot just put it down as it happened. Mm -hmm. So I'd learned through his offices at a very early age how much discipline must be applied to refining a thing so that it's, you know, understandable and comprehensible to an Oshalal audience. That if it's solely your story, it's not the story of anybody else then. It must be the story of everybody else. If you accept that human beings of any creed or gender, basically, they're cast out of paradise and they're trying to get their way back every day of the week. And... Um, there's a great sadness. And I go back to the story, though, the, the, 
people kind of, why wasn't he helped and everything else. I never saw it as a social realist story like that. I mean, people were saying to me, you ran the town down, you did. But many times the, the place is described as the most beautiful town on earth. You know, mm-hmm. There's a beautiful battleship or a beautiful cruise liner about to see. It's full of all the human kind of aspirations that Ulysses, kind of, mm-hmm. uh, through every minute of every day, people experience different things. So I wanted it to be a big story. And as soon as I'd finished that draft I was telling you about after the big rejection, I thought nobody would read it. Yeah. I thought it would never be read. I could tell you a good one. I, I gave it to a friend of mine. He said, yeah, it's interesting. Jesus, the printer's really fucked up, though, didn't they? And I said, what do you mean the printer's fucked up? Ah, they did, though. I said, well, no, they didn't. But there's no capital letters or full stops or nothing. In it. <laughs> and I didn't know what to say. <laughs> you know, I'd thought that this had come out in a huge kind of controlled rush, you know, of energy and, you know, all, this, all these things that were intentional. He felt sort of sorry for me. But that was what got me out of my fucking writer's block was the fact that you'd done that, the fact that you'd have sentences that were so long. People had done it before me. Wasn't anything new about it. Who were you looking for? Who were you looking at for that shit? Was that the joys coming out? Partly, but one must remember, Brian Boy, that writers are always forgotten. And please God, you and I will not be forgotten too quickly. But there was a writer called Ian Cochrane, who was from Cullybacky in County Antrim. He was a working class Protestant uh, extraction. And he wrote a series of books in the 70s called Jesus on a Stick. Um... (laughs) That was one of them. Uh, the Lady Bird in a Looney Bin was another one. They were absolutely marvellous. And they had all the vernacular. Very, the speech in, in uh, Collibahi wouldn't be that different to Monaghan. So I was really addicted to these things. And um, I read them all. And he had done it before me. And I acknowledged it. And I kept saying to journalists, stop saying I'm original. Mm-hmm. I'm not. But they hadn't read Ian Cochrane. Mm-hmm. And uh, I see his books were republished destroyed in the papers. Like, who, who, what's funny about this? Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. I, I was, it was the first time in my life I was prompted to pick up a pen and say, how dare you? Mm-hmm. How dare you write this about this guy? You know? I, I, even allowing for all the, the changes in fashion and everything else. The guy's work was so funny, so good, so original, and so authentic. I just, I just say, I'm never buying this magazine again because it was an absolute travesty. But he was a huge influence. Very funny, very hip at the time, but very rural. That was the thing mm-hmm. that was very important to me. And I think when you speak about um, Limerick, you know, mm-hmm. and you're talking about the post-colonial situation and how the vernacular in, informs that, I think it's hugely political and hugely important. that Because if you're speaking in the wrong register... Or you're speaking yeah. in a register that somebody has decided you should speak in. Mm-hmm. It's not. It might be all right, but it'll not be as good as it could be. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid, I remember becoming aware of a kind of a drollery in the speech in Monaghan and the Cabin. You know, I remember saying, "Jesus!" And you'd get it in old people, and you get it in younger kids. I went, "What is being?" Uh, taught catechism in the, the school in Clonus, the, the teacher had just told the parable of the loaves and fishes, you know, mm-hmm. feeding the multitude. And there's always a young fella at the back, isn't there, like looking out the window, a little country fella, you know, probably working 
from the bog or a plant hire or something like that. And the teacher said, you don't seem very much interested. Did you not, did you not hear what I just said? And he says, I did, yeah. And, uh, well, what do you think about that? The miracle of the loaves and fishes. And <laughs> Jesus comes down from heaven and he feeds. And the young guy didn't look at the teacher. I remember not this, how sort of implacable he was. I said, what do you think about the miracle of the loaves and fishes? And the little fella, remember, he's only five miles out the country, but out the country is different to in the town. Yeah. And he said, it better be a whale. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, it better be. Nobody in the town says that. They say it in the country. You know, it might as well be a whale, we'd say. Yeah. Or, or it would definitely have to be a bigger fish than that. But he just, better you whale. And I thought, well, fuck, that's a good way of saying it. And I tried to try to say it, but I couldn't say it as authentically as him. Because he was, you know, surrounded by older people working. And, thing. and it, probably if you track that back, you'll get Elizabethan English. Wow. You know what I mean? So I've been very alert to the possibilities of... So he says it different. So all the time within the language, you'd be getting all these different musical kind of notes. Mm -hmm. And the, the, when it came to the butcher boy, I said, I'll tell you, without being long-winded about it, when I submitted it eventually to the publisher, he said, when I was a young lad 20 or 30 years ago, I lived in a small town on what, <clears throat> where they were all after me on account of what I'd done on Mrs. Nugent. The publisher said, well, obviously we'll have to change that. Fuck off, you English cunt. No. No, no, it wasn't anything to do with English, really, it wasn't. It, it was, um, he was just, he was just thinking, you know, we have to get this accessible to, to the, as most people that will buy it. But I said, no, you can't do that because you change that, you change everything about it. Mm -hmm. The whole register, the whole note, mm -hmm. if it's in the key of E flat, you can't suddenly switch mid-phrase yes. to D minor. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he was perfectly fine with it eventually. I don't know whether I'd get away with it now because they just say, well, we're not publishing it. That'd be the difference. What's the difference like between the publishing industry today and, and, and when you were doing things back then? I think now it's a much more commercial enterprise. What they call in, in business the end user, mm -hmm. the people at the end who buy it. Then, see, you must remember that in my day, with the risk of standing too old, there was such a thing as a calling or a vocation. Sometimes the religious had it, sometimes... But the thing was that it wasn't entirely about commerce. It was about being devoted to something. And you had writers in this area, plenty of them, Eugene McCabe, Dermot Healy, Tom McIntyre, Michael Hart. They all had a calling. And don't forget that analogous to the religious were someone who had had have a vocation. People understood this. Now, they, would, they mightn't have wanted it for their own children, but they would have had respect for it which might not be the case now. How much money are you making? Mm -hmm. Guy came up to me during the um, Celtic Tiger time. He was in a hotel, the Four Seasons in Dublin. He said, are you who I think you are? In this, weir <laughs> in the, in this weird accent. You know that accent that developed? No other one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm all, all on the move, yeah. <laughs> the recession softened that cough. Ah. That's a very 2007, yeah. Didn't it, though? It did. Anyway... The dude, the dude, yeah, yeah, 25, sit down, buy a pint. <laughs> a hino. Yeah, I said, go on. Yeah, so a hino, yeah. But anyway, he does, and he comes down, so I've uh, got something to ask you. I said, uh, 
All right then, young man, what is it? Did, uh, I want to be a writer. Oh, yeah? Yep. With uh, 25, so I'll get four or five novels by 30, that sort of thing. What, what advice would you give me? I said, well, old fool that I am, I said, look, if you are serious about being a writer, one piece of advice I would give you, try and get enough money to get a house or a flat or something so that you'll have a roof over your head because it's... To continue with the race. And yeah. It, yeah, that's what I thought. And he's looking at me. Check out the dude. What? Get a house? I said, yeah, some kind of a place. Look, man, he said, I've got five houses. I don't need... <laughs> I, don't, I don't fucking need fucking dumb advice like this. I'm out of here. Uh, I hope the recession seriously softened. Well. Imagine it did. Five houses, man, in 2007. Uh, that fella's story did not end well. Um, you spoke there about, when you were chatting about the, the lad in school talking about the whale, you know, and you said there, the, the, there might be something Elizabethan about his drawl. Something I'd love to inquire about is anyone who doesn't live in, like, the Manahan area, right, we're genuinely, like, the fuck are you doing with that country music? Like, seriously, we, we, we marvel at it and go, what's going on? Like, this doesn't make sense. I have looked into it, and I've heard theories about a Protestant plantation, that it, it, it's, it's an Ulster Scots thing, and that's why you also see it over in, in the southern states of America. Oh, yeah, gospel. That there's that. Gospel. Do you, gospel do you think that's the crack? part of it, but mostly it's because it's... A, the rural stories, you know, these were, you know. Of course, there is that, that too, That's essentially yeah. what it yeah. is. I mean, you get all sorts of elements of what you're talking about. But, you know, guys sitting in bars in the southern states of America, listening to the jukebox, it's the same life that I lived. The fellas working in a factory, you know, stories of marriages gone wrong. They're brilliant stories. And, you know, there's always a touch of redemption, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, church going, kind of rural living. It's as that simple and also as complicated as you're saying, you know, but you need, you need someone who is well-versed in these things. But the gospel aspect of it definitely would come from the Ulster Scots element. Because it doesn't feel rooted in Irish tradition. It, it, it feels something foreign coming in. Well, I don't know when the banjo... What, what, banjo, interestingly, man, that's actually the, an yeah. African-American instrument. Yeah. The, the, the banjo... So in parts of West Africa they used to have a, a gourd, which is like a pumpkin. So they had an instrument in West Africa, I'm talking 500 years ago, so they'd get a pumpkin and there'd be a stick coming out of it and then one string, which is like the gut of an animal. And when enslaved people went to America, they were going, we don't have any instruments like this. So they then found American pumpkins and made these instruments and that's what the banjo is. So the banjo is actually an African-American enslaved instrument that found its way into, into country music. And then the country vibe, that's pure Ulster Scots, you know? Oh, absolutely. There. There's a that's why they're all called hillbilly, like, because of King Billy, like. Yeah, of course. It's true. Oh, no, no, no yeah. I'm, not, I'm not about to disagree with you one, one thing. I know it's true. And, you know, Billy the Kid was Kid Antrim. Yeah. But um, the thing is, there's a, a great movie on that subject, far better than I can articulate it, by a guy called John T. Davis, who's from County Down, I think. And it's called Power in the Blood. And Power in the Blood is a Protestant gospel song, mm -hmm. which was Paisley's favourite mm -hmm. thing. But he um, did this movie called Power in the Blood, which follows a country singer called Vernon Oxford. <laughs> what a name! Yeah, Vernon Toe Clock, they it. 
every time. Yeah. Get the old guitar down. And he's sitting in Monaghan town. Here I am, a northern sound. I hope you people are all doing good out there. Yeah. And all this stuff. But anyway, he goes to the Mays prison when the, the um, conflict was at its height, really. And um, some of the images in it are beautiful. He kind of has a russet sky, you know, somewhere in Texas. And he tracks along the electric wires and arrives back and down. And there's a, a prison officer's country music association. Mm -hmm. These are all big guys, you know, with the statues. And... The disagreements are parked for a while, and he stands up and he sings. He pushes the Stetson back, and through the wires going back out to Texas, where Vernon Oxford's home, he starts singing. Many years ago, on a cold, dark night, someone got killed at the pale moonlight. Now, if you can say... It doesn't really come from, There's never a music that sounded as appropriate to the landscape of both places wow. as that scene. Yeah. Where he's standing in silhouette. You could put all the blues you like there, and you could put all the rock and roll, but it wouldn't fit as good as uh, yeah. the Long Black Veil song by that guy. Really authentic, I thought. And, and do you think there is that... The country music singers, they're, 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 they're Presbyterians and stuff from the north who moved there. Like... I heard that the way that they say y'all, they say y'all in the southern states of America, was that that was old Elizabethan English. Yeah. Then it just went to the yeah. southern states. And even the, you were talking about Hank Williams earlier and his, his yodeling. Like the yodeling in America comes from an area in Appalachia that's known as the Hollers. And this area called the Hollers was a mountain range where people lived so far apart that they had to communicate through hollering. And that's where that old American yodeling comes from. I, I taught it for a while in Indiana. Yeah. In the university there. And uh, it's called the Hoosier State, you know, as in the Hoosier, the football, H-O-O-S-I-E-R. And I was curious as to where that came from. Mm -hmm. And what it is, it turns out to be, Hoosier! <laughs> wow! Yeah. So, going over the mountains. Hey, look at you! Hoosier! Yeah. Fucking hell. Mm. Um, and then show bands. What, did, what, what is the, like, I, I don't understand show bands. I know you understand them up here a lot, but like. I feel so sorry for you. And Limerick. the DJ, the DJ killed the show band, didn't it? Who? DJs killed the show band. Well, progress did. I mean, you got seven or eight people to pay in a band, you know, and the, 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 um, owners of these ballrooms see that if they can, you know, buy what we call the singing lunge. Yeah. You know, the singing lounge it was. You know. The singing lunge. Lunge, yeah. Are you going <laughs> to the singing lunge? <laughs> uh, it's a whole new thing, you see. So the people haven't got their heads around the right name. They're going all down <laughs> to the singing lunge tonight. But... Um, they couldn't, they saw it had spelt and just spelt, like, like calling it lingerie. Again, no, again, again, they call it lingerie in Limerick. Lingerie no, no, in Limerick no, is no. lingerie. That, that's Very unerratic. No, then she you was wearing her lingerie last night. It was hot. There, there's more going on there than you allow for. They're uh, taking ownership of it. Okay, yeah, You know yeah. what I mean? There's more going on than just not being able to read it. You know, this they, is their word And now. that's, again, a rural thing and a mm -hmm. country thing. You know, we don't say it like the, them folks up in the city. We make yeah. it our own. And, you know, that's very interesting in its the own lunge. right. Yeah. A lunge bar is one thing. But 
they would say then have three or four people instead of seven or eight. But I mean, it was never going to last forever. It lasted, but the miracle is that it happened at all. Like if they, like if you kind of think a guy is working, you know, in a meat factory in uh, during the day, that's what I think is really exotic because it's not urban. You know, it's rural, and the and the um, they put on the dicky bow and off they go off to Boris and Ossery or fucking yeah, Valencia yeah. Island, you know. And Places where, where the music comes to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of them too, like some show bands used to like be like novelty acts. They'd dress up as spacemen or cowboys or Indians. Really weird shit. Yeah, that was Joe Mack and the Dixies and all those people like doing opera and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was kind of crazy. There were A lot of them were, were really out to lunch, you know. They mm-hmm. really kind of... And uh, I think... Sociologically, they're uh, very important in Ireland, you know, mm-hmm. because it's not like the urbanity of the north of England where they had, you know, northern soul and all that kind of... It's peculiarly Irish, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It, it's not like anything any other country has. Now, you can say they're not great musicians, but some of them were. Mm-hmm. You know, there was almost like... Oh, man, some like, mm. I... Being from Limerick, when I think of show bands, I, I don't hold it in high esteem. But recently, like on YouTube, I went back and listened to some show bands and I'm like, fuck me, the musicianship here is shit hot. This is, this is actually good music. Like, not all of it, but some of it. Like, I was the guitar playing, it was good stuff. It was funny when uh, it started to change and horse lips came. Yeah. The clownish, you know, and uh, played in what was then called the Maryland. Ah, this is an old story, but it's kind of worth retelling. But um, the wheeled in was a mixing desk, okay. all the faders, yeah, and, yeah, and nobody in their lives had ever seen <laughs> a fucking mixing desk. So there was more people around this thing. Like, what is it like? <laughs> like Doctor Who or what? <laughs> You know, and there was and that's standard. That's standard. This was the point when the show bands, like, were given way to what then became known as groups. I mean, did you ever okay. hear the one about the, the drugs and horse lips? Did you ever hear no. that? There was these two boys supposedly down in Orf- Offaly, yeah, and the horse lips were being denounced from every pulpit in the place. You know, like long-haired pups coming down. You know, and uh, <laughs> long-haired pups. Yeah, but that's anyway, a better name than horse lips. Yeah, man. but the long-haired pups were arriving. You know. And you would have him and Carr and, you know, Barry Devlin and Charles O'Connor arriving in. And they were really great people because they, they were very friendly to the, the young country kind of heads, you know, who would mm-hmm. kind of be in awe of them. You'd see Charles Connor coming in and he'd have On the Road by Jack Kerouac mm-hmm. in, his, in his back pocket, you know. And this was the, at the age when you, th- you think you're going to be a writer, you know, and you think... You go to maybe the sports center in Cavan. You might get a girlfriend there, or you might go to the far-flung kind of climbs of the embassy in Castle Blaney. And you kind of be on the bus, of course. Like, sad, isn't it, really? But not like a horse outside kind of Citroen or something. But <laughs> you know, it's kind of dancing. You, you kind of figure out things like to say to these girls that you thought would be really impressed, you know, like... Uh, let the proprietors of the revolution know this. <laughs> that a chat up line. That, that, yeah. That, let the proprietors... I'd worked this out, that there was going to be some hippie chick that would... <laughs> no, no. 
how had it started was there used to be a magazine called Mind Alive. Yeah. Long before you were ever heard tell of Blind Boy. But in Mind Alive, which was a catalogue of exotic experiences, like erotica and things yeah, like yeah, across yeah. the world. And there was it, an article in this which suggested that there was a particular way that if you breathed on the girl's neck, she would fold and collapse at your feet and follow <laughs> you around for the rest of your days going, please, please go to bed with me. Right? Now, there's a mixture of all that kind of nonsense and kind of Dylan and early kind of counterculture, which would be the first girl that looks like a reasonable hippie prospect, you would dance with her, the slow set and say, let the proprietors of the revolution know this, that the song that people loved was written by a thief, right? Yeah. And then you'd look off mysteriously into the distance. <laughs> so anyway, I was waiting there with my heart beating and a copy of, you know, On the Road in the Arse Pocket, waiting to see what would be the most likely candidate for this conjugation that was about to ensue. Sure enough, there was a girl in a kind of a bearskin coat that was fashionable at the time. And I thought, oh, she's really going to go for this. You got hoop earrings and she got a little distant gaze, maybe a bit of ganja might have been on the job, I don't know. But anyway, time came and the, the, uh, the fresh men, as it were, were playing, you know, some kind of stylistic style slow set. Yeah. You know, Let's put it all yeah. together. Bit of Philly soul. Bit of Philly soul. And I thought, yeah, yeah I was getting confident now. But I'm thinking, this, you're not from the town, are you? She said, no, I'm not. I said, are you from Blaney? Yeah, fuck him. And uh, I thought, now is my moment, because you're obviously a dissident. <laughs> Let the proprietors of the revolution know this. That the song the people loved was written by a thief. <laughs> and you know what she said? Go on. Do you know what it is? I'm as warm as an old horse. <laughs> I swear to God it happened. <laughs> Did anyone have any hash back then? Yeah. Go away. Oh, yeah. There was hash up around here. No, not around, necessarily around here, but, you know. You know, if you went maybe a couple of miles down the road, aye. And, like, was it hard to come by? Was it, was no, it wouldn't be easy, no. Were young people smoking it? Or no, was it no, no. It was no. Only, only, only people who went around foolishly quoting Leonard Cohen to girls who oh. went <laughs> <laughs> no, um, It wouldn't have been common currency, really, no. Because I ended up talking to some fucking older hippies in Limerick, and they told me about... The first man in Limerick who brought hash to Limerick. And what he used to do was, he'd, he had a connection down in West Cork, so they were bringing it into West Cork. And he was the only, this would have been, it would have been the 60s, so he was the only man in Limerick bringing hash to Limerick. And the guards couldn't figure out how he was doing it. They knew he was doing it, but they couldn't figure out it was him. So he'd come back on the train, the guards would search him, and they wouldn't find the hash. What he was doing was, he'd get his hash put it into a biscuit tin with an alarm clock. Then as the train was coming in, he'd throw the biscuit tin full of hash with the alarm clock out the train window, arrive in Limerick, the guards would search him, and then he'd go back the train tracks, and at just at that time, the alarm clock would go off and he'd find his hash. And he managed to do it for 10 years. Did you write the story? 
I did not. It's true. No, I, but did you write a verse? I didn't about write. It. Well, you should. That's one for writing. It's a great story. Yeah, yeah. All right, look, we're going to call it a night because I need to make sure that you can go to the pub and have a pint. Yeah. Although, I'd imagine, I'm there, like, usually when I do a gig, I'm like, got to make sure I wrap it up at half ten so they can get a pint. I'd say the bar just stays open here. There's only one pub, and I'd say it doesn't close. <laughs> but uh, anyway, look, Pat, this was the most magnificent, fantastic chat. Yeah, thanks very much to Blind Boy. It was lovely. It was Thank you so much, everybody, for coming along. Thank you so much to Pat McCabe. Wonderful chat. Have a good night. Bola boss, bola boss, bola boss. That was a wonderful chat with Pat McCabe. I hope you enjoyed that. And again, apologies for not having much talk this week. It is quite painful for me to talk with my stupid cunt of a throat. So hopefully this will all be sorted within a number of days. I'll just get a bit of rest. And I'll be back with lots of chat next week. It was World Mental Health Day there yesterday. So I was going to do something mental healthy. But not not when I sound like I'm getting teabagged by Beelzebub. Alright, I'll catch you next week. Dog bless. I'm not going to blow you kisses. Because I've got a sore throat. Even though you can't pick them up over the fucking earphones. It just feels... It feels uncouth. It feels wrong. Catch you next week. Dog bless. I'll hug the microphone. There you go. (laughs) Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.